Fred claimed that he was aboard the USS Antietam, that a similar degaussing experiment uh, happened to him numerous times, and uh, it was the same thing that happened in, uh, in 1943 with uh, the Eldridge, and he claimed that he had additional information to prove that the Philadelphia experiment was actually valid. You are listening to Terra Signals, presented by Normal Paranormal. I am your host, Justin Bamforth. For those of you unfamiliar with Maxim Furek's work, he considers himself an academic and an avid student of the paranormal. His eclectic background includes aspects of psychology, addictions, and rock journalism. Maxim has a master's degree in communications from Bloomsburg University and a bachelor's degree in psychology from Aquinas College. He has written numerous rock biographies and paranormal-themed books, including Coal Region Hoodoo, Paranormal Tales from Inside the Pit, and Shepton, The Myth, Miracle, and Music. Now, Maxim has been featured on numerous podcasts, including Australia's Mysterious Universe, Exploring the Bizarre with the legendary late Timothy Green Beckley, and Paranormal 60 with Dave Schrader. He contributes articles to Fate Magazine, Paranormal Underground, and of course, my site, Normal Paranormal. But tonight, he returns to the show to discuss a mysterious event that will soon be approaching its 80th anniversary, the Philadelphia Experiment, as well as his upcoming book, The Flying Saucer Esoteric, History's Most Amazing UFO Events. Maxim, my friend, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Justin. Thanks for having me again on uh, Terra Signals. And thank you so much for acknowledging and recognizing the Philadelphia Experiment. You know, I think more uh, ufologists and more paranormal researchers need to go down this road. So thanks so much. And, you know, uh, hopefully we can have a nice discussion about the Philadelphia Experiment that took place, as you said, 80 years ago, 1943. Wow. That is quite some time ago, I tell you. But um, in your book, right, Coal Region Hoodoo, Paranormal Tales from Inside the Pit, you go into various paranormal phenomena, including this story about the Philadelphia experiment. Now, like, given its complexity involving time travel, potential murder, government cover-ups, what drew you to include this in your book? Well, one of the things is, you know, my Coal Region Hoodoo is Pennsylvania-centric. So if you go with the, the premise that uh, art... Uh, imitates life. You know, I talked about Night of the Living Dead and The Blob. I mean, uh, motion pictures that were uh, created and uh, here in Pennsylvania. But with the Philadelphia experiment, that was one that I just thought, you know, I, first of all, a couple of things. One, I had a personal connection with that. I knew a, an individual who had personal information about uh, the Philadelphia experiment. And I include that in my book. But also, it was something that with uh, the, mo- the movie Oppenheimer, with all of the attention to the Manhattan Project and all of the uh, things that were happening during World War II, the Philadelphia Experiment fits in with that, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, part and parcel. I mean, it's just it belongs in that whole genre of Oppenheimer and atomic bombs and nuclear energy and everything else. So it's just a lot of uh, exciting things happened, you know, uh, during the 1940s, you know, just in preparation for, for winning this war. And uh, the uh, Philadelphia experiment uh, fits into that. A lot of listeners are familiar with the Philadelphia experiment because of the extreme speculation and even these wild conspiracy theories. But For those who may not be familiar with the story, 
what are some of the key events and elements that make it such a compelling topic? Well, it's compelling because uh, uh, part of it was true. I mean, there's no denying that. Uh, but the, the mythology, the legend is this, that in 1943, the USS Eldridge, a uh, destroyer, it was a, a destroyer escort, and its crew were made uh, invisible. They were rendered invisible and then teleported from Philadelphia to uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, there might have been some time travel, a time uh, delay there. But then they came back, and on the way back on the re- return trip, that's where, according to the legend, the bad things happened. And uh, they talked about the ship, uh, the crew suffering horrible physiological events. And for those your listeners that have seen uh, some of the three motion pictures on the Philadelphia experiment, but there was one that, I mean, it was it's just like it just uh, etched into our minds. And this is where the uh, uh, members of the uh, several members of the uh, Eldridge were embedded, partially embedded in the steel deck. They were still alive, but they were just uh, embedded there. And that was just such a graphic and just a. Uh, uh, horrible uh, visual. And I think uh, more than anything else, people remember that. But according to the story, uh, when the the ship uh, was re-teleported back to Philadelphia, you know, all kinds of bad things happened, including uh, several people died. And that's where the story kind of ended, you know. uh, And, uh, you know, and again, uh, it's very difficult to get any kind of information because the government contends to this day that it never happened, that the technology never was developed and, you know, all this other stuff. So it was very much uh, like, you know, we've heard the same thing with uh, Kecksburg, the Kecksburg UFO, the Roswell, you know, and everything else, you know, just, um, you know, government denial and uh, and also misinformation. So, uh, and certainly with, with, uh, with this story, uh, we had, I think, uh, government disinformation. You know, there, there were so many other players that got involved in the Philadelphia experiment. But uh, What were they trying to, like, experiment with? I mean, what was the, the goal with this, with this whole uh, thing? Okay, well, during World War II, you know, the Allied shipping, you know, uh, the uh, military uh, transports, and the military ships were going across the Atlantic, and uh, the Germans had laid these uh, these underwater uh, mines. Now, what would happen is the ship would go over the mines, and the magnetic field, you know, it's, and it was measured in Gausses. So uh, the the uh, magnetic field would trigger the bomb and blow up the ships. So there was a technique called degaussing, and I think it was developed in Canada. But they would wrap coils around these ships. And they would uh, electrify them, and that electricity would nullify uh, the the gauss. So they would degauss these ships, and so they would become invisible—not to radar and not to the human eye—but they would become invisible to those bombs, those undersea bombs. So this was a very uh, effective tactic that they used. It was—I mean, it actually happened uh, according to the theory, according to the you know uh, UFO researchers. Uh, and paranormal researchers, what happened was in 1943, it was an experiment where they tried to have additional electricity, and this experiment went sideways. It went wrong, and rather than just degaussing the Eldridge, it was actually teleported. So that's that's the story, and we have numerous people that came forward to say, yes, it actually happened, and I was involved. So, Wow. Wow. That That is amazing. 
I mean, did like how did this story initially come out? Well, there was um, a guy named Carl Allen, uh, aka Carlos Alinde, uh, uh, and what he did was he um, he was from New Kensington, Pennsylvania, but what he did was he sent a bunch of letters to uh, Dr. Morris Jessup. And Jessup had written a book about the case for the UFO. And what Allen did from, from New Kensington, he took copies of uh, the case for the UFO and he had these annotations. It looked, it was different colored markers. It looked like there were three or four different people that were adding this information. But he claimed, uh, Carlos, uh, 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 Carl Allen claimed that, um, he had personal information about the uh, uh, Philadelphia experiment. In 1956, he sent over 50 handwritten letters to Morris Jessup. He claimed that uh, he knew about Einstein's unified field theory. Uh, and of course, with, with that, that was Einstein, Einstein's attempt to merge gravity and the electromagnetism into one field. You know, I mean, uh, you know, the world scientists have been looking for anti-gravity devices. I mean, this would just change, you know, the game plan. This would change the world if they could do that. But uh, Allen claimed that he had information about this unified field, uh, field theory. And uh, he sent that information not only to Morris Jessup, but he sent uh, a package to the United States Office of Naval Research. And it was a copy of Jessup's book with the same annotations. And he sent it there and with the heading Happy Easter. And that got the Office of Naval Research involved in this. And so they called Jessup into the office and they wanted to know about this. Again, this was during, um, uh, during the, the war years. And uh, they wanted to know if there was anything out there that, you know, might have been, um, you know, uh, might help us win the war, might contribute to our technology, etc. So uh, Carl Allen from New Kensington, Pennsylvania, just entered the picture, you know, and uh, uh, and brought uh, Morris Jessup and the uh, Naval De Department, Naval Office of the Naval Research together. And uh, so, it, uh, you know, just it added to that to that mystique. Interesting. Now, this Carl Allen, uh, can he be trusted? I mean, what was, does anybody know his story? Well, well, his story was that he said he was a merchant Marine and he was aboard the USS Andrew Furseth. And uh, uh, he claimed that he saw the Philadelphia experiment in 1943. He said that he was aboard this, uh, he was a merchant Marine and he actually witnessed that. So not only did he have information about the unified field theory, you know, technical scientific information, but also he personally, he claims that he personally was there in Philadelphia in 1943 when this happened. So, and, and he uh, played uh, an, uh, a large part in, uh, I think it was William Moore and Charles Berlitz's book on the Philadelphia experiment. So uh, uh, Carl Allen, he called himself Carlos Miguel Allende. He changed his name. I'm not exactly sure why. Why? Uh, they said that he was a charismatic drifter. He was from New Kensington, that he uh, he was of a, a, a gypsy extraction, maybe Romanian. Uh, and he was in, like I said, in Western Pennsylvania. So just an interesting individual. Huh. Yeah, that is that is interesting. Were there any other individuals who were on board the ship who were part of the experiment who then talked about this like later? 
Yeah, there were. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Al Bielak was one of them. And uh, Yeah, I remember when Al Bielak, he, uh, he started talking about this and he was making his rounds on like shows like Coast to Coast, talking with Art Bell about this. Yeah. In the, in he, the 90s, right? Yeah, around 1995. Yeah, he started to uh, uh, he appear at some of these conferences and he said that he was aboard the uh, Eldridge. Now, he claimed that he was a retired electrical engineer. He said that he was aboard the Eldridge with his brother, Duncan Belak. And, uh, and uh, Al said that his job was to throw the on switch. So this switch would go and turn on the generators, these massive generators that would produce the electromagnetic fields, you know, the degaussing thing. So Belak said that when he did that in 1943, the ship became unstuck and just horrible things started to happen. So him and his brother, and this is where the story gets really whacked out, but he claims him and his brother jumped into the water. And here's a quote from Al at one of his lectures. He said, quote, we expected to hit the water in the bay and swim ashore, but no water. We never hit it. We kept falling and falling for quite a period of time. And then he said uh, that him and his brother Duncan were uh, transported 194 years into the future, and he was in uh, 2137, and he was being treated for intense radiation poisoning uh, in a hospital room uh, 194 years into the future. That's a bold claim. It's a bizarre claim. Um, um, He started to make the rounds with um, uh, another individual, uh, Phil Schneider, but uh, Belak said that while he was there in 2137, there were banks of uh, television sets with all these programs. And he said that he heard things, he learned things, you know, shocking news about the world and about America. And he said that uh, because he was there in the future, you know, he was privy to this, uh, to this shocking news, this information. How did he claim to then get back to his, 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 uh, cur- his current timeline? Okay, so the uh, shocking news that Al uh, Belak said that he heard when he was in the future, uh, he said that he that uh, with these banks of TV sets uh, that lined the room, he said that they talked about climate change. Uh, these programs claimed said that the climate change had significantly significantly altered the geography of the United States. For example, the water level had risen around Florida, so that the only landmass left was the Panhandle, which is in the uh, western, uh, upper western part of the state. He said that uh, Atlanta, Georgia, was now only three miles from the ocean. He said the Mississippi River had become an uh, inland waterway. Uh, the Great Lakes had merged into one massive body of water. So when he was there in the future, he claimed that he had learned all of this, this information, this like really bizarre stuff that, was, that, happened, that would happen in the future. Uh, you know, uh, to uh, the United States in, 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 in particular. Well, but how did he, how did he get back from the future into the, the current timeline that he disappeared from? So, so he was, uh, uh, he time traveled to 2137 where he was there for six months and treated for that radiation poison. And then he was, uh, uh, he time traveled or teleported back to, um, Philadelphia, and um, he claimed that the officials told him, since him and his brothers were the only ones 
uh, alive, the only ones who had, had survived. Uh, he claimed that um, uh, the, the, the effects of the time travel uh, were unexpected. And uh, what they did was they then sent him to uh, uh, the Montauk Project, which was in uh, Long Island, New York. And then the, uh, the, th- the theory, the uh, conspiracy theory, the, you know, the narrative of the Philadelphia experiment just got larger and larger and went into uh, other areas. And, and I'll, I'll say this, if in fact, we just take a look at the Philadelphia experiment before Al Bielak entered it, you know, you have a story about, uh, you know, about World War II experimentation, uh, with the Gossing, uh, a story about an experiment that uh, that went wrong, uh, that people were injured, and also that there was a government cover-up. And that in itself sort of makes sense to me. I mean, all of that has all the, all the right parts. But with Alby, like he starts talking about time travel into the future and uh, not only being connected with uh, uh, the Philadelphia experiment, but now also the Montauk project and time travel, and just a whole lot of other uh, bizarre things. And, uh, you know, he took it from, I don't know, he took it into another realm. And uh, I don't know how many people, when he was making the uh, rounds, how many people actually believed him, but a lot of his uh, his narrative is really just unbelievable. It's just like, it's hard to believe that, uh, you know, all of this happened just to one individual. Was there any mention of Al Bielik in the original letters from Carl Allen to Jessup? Did he make any mention of this? I don't. I don't believe there were. No. What um, What uh, Carl Allen uh, was talking to? He was talking about Einstein's unified field theory, uh, anti gravity uh, machines. You know th- that possibility. Uh, he was talking about Jessup's book uh, on UFOs. And uh, so basically what Carl Allen was doing, he was sort of bouncing off of what uh, uh, Jessup had already written. And again, that book became infamous because the uh, Navy Department of Research got hold, you know, was sent uh, the, uh, uh, the book, Jessup's book by Carl Allen with all these annotations. And they wanted to get to the bottom of this. They wanted to know what was, what was going on. So no, uh, Al Bielak was not mentioned in the uh, Philadelphia Experiment. As far as I know, it wasn't uh, mentioned by Carl Allen. And my contact was, was Fred Tracy, and Fred uh, uh, never said anything about, uh, about BLAC. So um, I'm, I'm just um, you know, questioning his validity and some of his claims. Yeah, let's get into your journey to um, where you interviewed Fred Tracy shortly before his passing. He lived in Derry, New Hampshire. Right. And how did you get in touch with him? Well, that's a pretty interesting story. You know, um, a number of the stories in Coleridge and Hoodoo, you know, I have a, are personal to me. Um, my cousin Jim Furick was friends with Fred Tracy. They were both in the military, and Jim was living up in Derry, uh, New Hampshire, for a while before he came back to Pennsylvania. So Jim told me about this guy up in Derry that knew about the Philadelphia experiment. So you know, I was curious. So. He gave me Fred's phone number and I called him up and talked to him several times. And I thought, you know, I want to go up there and interview him. So I drove up to Derry for a weekend and interviewed him, you know, you know, a number of times. And uh, Fred claimed that he was aboard the USS Antietam, that a similar degaussing experiment uh, happened to him numerous times. And uh, it was the same thing that happened in uh, in 1943 with uh 
uh, Eldridge, and he claimed that he had additional information to, to prove that the uh, Philadelphia experiment was actually valid. Whoa, whoa, whoa! So, so he claimed. So, so Fred Tracy is telling you that a similar experiment took place, similar to the Philadelphia experiment, but it was on the ship he was part of called the USS Antietam. Yeah, it was CV-36, yeah. It was an aircraft carrier, and they did the same thing. They just had massive uh, amounts of, uh, uh, of electricity. Uh, his uh, took place, the first one took place in uh, Annapolis, Maryland, and um, this was in 45, but the Antietam was escorted upriver, and there was a massive power station. He claimed there was uh, 250 uh, feet wide. It was 500 feet long, and he said that that for... Uh, uh, several days, the Antietam was bombarded with these electricity charges. He said for three days, and he said it was time enough to penetrate these ships' eight-inch thick steel hull. So he claimed that uh, he became ill from that. That uh, you know he had he had to use liquid oxygen later on, and uh, just a whole lot of things happened to him. And uh, he was sixty years old when I when I interviewed him, but he looked a lot older. You know, he looked like he was. Uh, you know, uh, really had, might've had the effects of some sort of radiation poisoning. Holy moly. What else did he, did he explain like any of these time travel things or, you know, any of the, uh, did he witness any of the same effects that took place on the uh, USS Eldridge? Yeah, he did experiment, uh, experience the same things that they did on the, the Eldridge. Uh, the uh, second time, uh, that uh, he exper experienced the degaussing procedure was uh, he was in the Yellow Sea and he said that there was uh, something like uh, over a million three hundred forty thousand watts of electricity bombarded his mates for three again for three days and uh, uh, he said this was because they had numerous sea mines and so that the generators operated twenty four hours a day during this. Yellow Sea procedure. So that was, uh, you know, the, uh, an actual experiments that he uh, uh, was involved in. But uh, what he said, the, he said something about uh, Admiral Forrestal that probably was the most profound. And I, for me, at least was the most dramatic, you know, when he talked about Forrestal's report. Um, yeah. All right. So before we get into that, um, I just want to make sure that Fred Tracy is who he claims to be. You you fact you verified his what that he was part of the military and that he was on board this this USS Antietam. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, Fred sent me, you know, we corresponded for the longest time and uh he sent me numerous documents that he had sent to the military. I mean stuff that was uh you know uh typewritten and and uh and printed uh, I mean, just a lot of good documentation. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's too bad that his story wasn't part of the Philadelphia Experiment, the, the novel, because it deserves to be there. And he tells the story from his perspective. And again, he was involved in degaussing experimentation. And then he was one of the, one of the individuals that was there when uh, the report from Admiral Forrestal was read, which was probably, I think, the most, most profound, uh, you know, uh, revelation, I, I think, that, that, uh, that, you know, that he told me.
And you're talking about Admiral Forrestal. Is this the James Forrestal that we hear in a lot of the uh, UFO lore? Yeah, uh, uh, Navy Admiral James Vincent Forrestal. He's uh, been connected to uh, 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 MJ-12. You know, he's supposed to be uh, supposed to have been a member of that, uh, you know, that that group. That uh, the, again, the uh, the, uh, the military uh, says that uh, you know it never happened, but uh, according to ufologists, MJ twelve was a secret committee that uh, President Truman put together to retrieve uh, uh, UFOs, you know, flying saucers, and in, in particular uh, uh, the Roswell uh, craft. But um, with Fred Tracy, he said that around nineteen forty five. Uh, because of the widespread rumors and because of low morale, uh, uh, and, and Forrester was a secretary at the Navy at the time, but he issued a directive clarifying the allegations of the Eldridge. He said this crew, Fred Tracy said that the crew was sworn to secrecy. They were re, uh, repeat, repeatedly warned that it would be an act of treason to reveal the directive's contents. So the memo was read to them, to Fred Tracy's uh, group aboard the Antietam, uh, during the uh, final days of World War II, Fred thought it might have been somewhere in May of 1945. Uh, I believe the war ended in, in June, but uh, it was in May, maybe May 8th to May 19th, he thought. But uh, Fred said, and this is uh, in Fred's words, he said that, Forrestal acknowledged that the Eldridge's degaussing operation had gone wrong. And according to Forrestal's directive, quote, it was then decided to stop the degaussing operation and see what was wrong. The ship could not be seen, although all the electrical cables would still be in a coil position as if being supported. The boat was not there, nor was any member of its crew present. At the Navy Yard, a, a mist appeared and grew heavy. Finally, the ship reappeared. When the ship was boarded, severe damage was found onto the ship and terrible effects on the crew. So again, this was the directive that was read to Fred Tracy and his crewmates on the USS Antietam, an aircraft carrier, and it was written by uh, Secretary of the Navy, Admiral James Forrestal. And uh, your listeners probably know that uh, Admiral Forrestal came to an untimely uh, end. And, uh, you know, some ufologists think that he was murdered, but what happened was he was being treated for uh, a mental illness in Bethesda, at the Bethesda Hospital. And he was suicidal, he was depressed, and yet they put him on the 16th floor, uh, you know, they said for observation, but he jumped out of that, uh, out of the uh, hospital 16 floors to his death. Again, uh, another person, another suicide, you know, uh, again, many people, you know, many uh, other uh, ufologists claim that, um, you know, it, it wasn't a suicide, that it was actually like a murder. And there's been numerous books, you know, that, uh, that reference that. So it's just amazing when even Jessup, there's another one, Jessup, supposedly was going to go and reveal what he had found out about uh, anti-gravity uh, 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 craft, uh, anti-gravity propulsion. Uh, he was supposed to reveal that. But the day before, uh, he allegedly committed suicide in a parking lot in Miami, Florida, you know, that he put uh, 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 a hose uh, 
from his exhaust into the car and committed suicide that way. Again, it seems very mysterious, you know, that he would commit suicide because he had so much. I mean, he was just anticipating, you know, this revelation. He was going to tell his one friend what he had uh, discovered. So it was just really curious that he would choose that time to commit suicide. So a lot of people don't believe it. You know, it's, you know, when you follow this Philadelphia experiment, I mean, there's a, and the vari- the variations of it. There's a number of people that died, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, either mysterious deaths or, uh, you know, uh, uh, blatant uh, uh, homicide. So it's just, uh, you know, this, the story is uh, uh, is bigger than what Moore and Berlitz uh, uh, wrote about in their uh, in their Philadelphia Experiment book. Wow. All right. So let's unpack some of this. Um this larger information with, with documents and classified and hopefully unclassified. I mean, ha- has any of this uh, been declassified from our government? Well, what happened was <clears throat> I wrote a letter to the um, Department of the Navy and I got a response from Richard A. Von Donhoff, and this is from the National Archives and Records Administration. So uh, a while back, I was, you know, interviewing Fred Tracy. I was talking to Stanton Friedman. Uh, I uh, corresponded with William Moore. You know, a number of the people that were involved in the Philadelphia experiment. But the I, I did contact uh, Richard A. Von Donhoff. He responded to me, and here's what he said. This is his quote. Uh, and again, I'm uh, I take this with a grain of salt, but he said, "quote." As far as the Department of the Navy can determine, the fictitious story of the destroyer, USS Eldridge, from the Delaware River off the League Island Naval Yard to Hampton Roads back in 1943 began as a practical joke among staff members of the Naval Research Laboratory here in Washington. The humorous commentary on a theoretical paper on electromagnetism got out of hand and soon achieved the status of fact and legend. So that's what they sent me. But, you know, the whole document that he sent me is peppered with the fictitious story, you know, a practical joke, the humorous commentary. I mean, this is just like, I mean, just so biased and one-sided and, uh, you know, uh, again, um, very few of us hold, uh, you know, uh, you know, the government, you know, uh, uh, you know, attribute a whole lot of validity to the government when they talk about, you know, uh, anything pertaining to uh, parapsychology or experimentations or, or, or UAPs. So um, this is just another example of that. But, you know, he, but I still have a copy of that. And I believe uh, that letter from the National Archives uh, is, there's a copy of that uh, reproduced in my book, Co-Region Hoodoo. So, you know, your readers could read that for themselves. But uh, again, I take it with a grain of salt. Wow. That, so, so here we have an official representative of our government or our military saying that this was just a big joke. This exactly. Was- yeah, a practical joke, yeah, that they uh, put it together, um, you know, um, back there in Washington and, uh, you know, um, and th- that it got out of hand. So, uh, did he mention anything about the Antietam that Fred Tracy was on? No, uh, like I said, Fred Tracy. It's 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 sad that Fred Tracy hasn't had more of a vis- of more visibility because he played 
as just as important part as Carl Allen did and so, and Morris Jessup. I mean, uh, Fred Tracy needs to be there because he was able to, you know, uh, validate and authenticate um, a number of this stuff. Uh, you know, the things that certainly with the, ex, the, the, the degaussing experiment, I mean, we know that it did happen and, uh, you know, not only from Fred Tracy, but he sort of validated the fact that yes, the government was experimenting with this degaussing uh, procedure you know, because it was important to do that. And Fred Tracy was a part of that. Uh, the more interesting thing, though, is the letter, the directive from uh, Admiral Forrestal that, uh, you know, that that added much to this. And then the unfortunate suicide of Admiral Forrestal. Uh, again, it just makes you wonder, you know, uh, in the, uh, we, we've lost a number of people, uh, you know, that were connected to the... Um, you know, to the Philadelphia experiment. When you were doing your research, did you ever feel like you were getting too close to something or did you ever feel that danger that something could happen? I didn't feel that at the time. In retrospect, I'm thinking that maybe uh, there might have been a possibility. There might have been some concern there or there should have been some concern. But uh, no, I was just caught up into it. You know, and again, with my research, I would read Every single thing I could, I would try to make sense of it, you know, and certainly uh, back in uh, during the World War Two with Einstein and Tesla and Oppenheimer and uh, uh, Enrico Fermi. I mean, when you take a look at some of the things that they were doing, some of the experiments, I mean, it's just like amazing stuff. And uh, uh, for example, um, you know, and I'm sure your listeners, I haven't seen Oppenheimer uh, but I don't know if they, they would talk about this, but Enrico Fermi was part of this Manhattan Project, and he was in Chicago. He was had a laboratory underneath the University of Chicago. It was underneath the, uh, the uh, gymnasium. So they had these logs with plutonium rods, and what they would do is they would insert the plutonium rods gently to try to cause a nuclear reaction and then pull them out. They just want to see if they could do it. So this was happening in Chicago as Oppenheimer and his people and everybody else was working on different components of, you know, of the, the atomic bomb, you know, so um, just amazing. <clears throat> and, um, you know, and with uh, Enrico Fermi and Oppenheimer, you know, they're famous individuals, but they are, they have been reintroduced to the public now from the movie uh, Oppenheimer, at least Oppenheimer has been. So, you know, prior to that, you know, he was only known to maybe a select a select few who follow things like this. Now, all of a sudden, he's back in the limelight, you know, uh, for all of the things he did. And, and what was interesting, too, again, I haven't seen the motion picture, but Oppenheimer, his uh, security clearance was taken away and he was banned because he was a member, I believe, of the... I believe the Communist Party or the Socialist, uh, which um, isn't as bad as it sounds. I mean, it's just like it was, it was a very uh, sort of like a liberal progressive thing that a lot of people did. So, I mean, it wasn't that he was a bad guy spying on us for the Soviets. It wasn't that at all. But he just um, might have been a member of that group. And because of that, he paid the price. And then later on, I forget which president reinstated him, you know, uh, after the fact. So, um, but Oppenheimer uh, and played a part in this just as did Einstein and Tesla and, you know, and, and Morris Jessup. 
I mean, just a whole bunch of, uh, you know, scientists and, and uh, uh, physicists who were trying to figure this out. And just amazing what they did. I mean, world, the 1940s, I mean, the things that they did, you know. So did they invent something by mistake that could actually teleport people or uh, induce time travel? Well, you know, maybe theoretically, you know, it's possible and maybe they did. Uh, I, I just think that uh, Al Belak was the wrong uh, messenger. You know, I mean, don't kill the messenger. But I mean, uh, we could have used a, uh, a, a another example too. And this is totally off the off the thing. But uh, Jack Kevorkian was the guy that was promoting uh, euthanasia, mercy killing. And you know, he was the wrong guy for the job. I mean, he just looked like a ghoul. And uh, so, uh, you know. Uh, just for that topic, we needed somebody else. I'm just saying that Al Bielak was the wrong guy to spread the message of the Philadelphia experiment and the Montauk project and everything and time travel. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know how other people view him, but I don't view him as being very credible. Do you think that there was an aspect of these Degaussian experiments that led to time travel in maybe in the, the Antietam or other ships? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I Again, I think that what happened in 1943 in Philadelphia, it was a it was an actual experiment that went wrong. It went sideways. And I think some uh, some nasty things happened and the government immediately covered it up. You know, um, you know, we've heard about, uh, for example, uh, out in Montana and Wyoming, you know, the government has uh, been has killed thousands of head of cattle and sheep, you know, with their, uh, with their poison gas, you know, their, uh, you know, experiments out there. So we, we know that, uh, you know, we don't know about the, uh, 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 the, um, cattle mutilations, if that's government, you know, black ops doing that or, or somebody else, but, you know, there's things that they do that then they cover it up and don't tell us. So again, you know, the thing about nuking all of those cat, those uh, sheep out in the uh, uh, in the uh, uh, Midwest and the in the in the Northwest, uh, you know, they admitted to that. But you know, I don't think they've ever admitted anything about the cattle mutilations. But the government does things, and they have billions and billions and trillions of dollars to do experimentations. And uh, you know, when you talk about the Montauk project, and you know, uh, you know time travel and uh, mind projection and all this and mind control. I mean, you know, we have the government has the money to do that. They have the experts to do that. And they have these clandestine groups that we don't even know about that, that are being funded, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, with uh, the, these, these, these black monies. And so, um, you know, a lot of this is just conjecture, but just to answer your question, I'm, Sorry, I'm so long-winded, but yeah, I believe that um, you know that time travel and tel and teleportation uh, uh, is uh, you know is uh, you know are possible uh, you know uh, and even back in the '40s, given with what um, you know with what the technology was back then. Hmm. Well, uh, going back to Fred Tracy, when you know, because obviously he was not on board the Eldridge. But he no. was on board the Antietam. Did right. did Fred Tracy ever talk about these time travel concepts? He didn't talk about time travel. He talked about degaussing. He talked about the physical effects of that, and uh, you know, the uh, from uh, uh, being bombarded with uh, massive amounts of uh, of uh, 
of energy. So he did talk about, about the uh, the Gaussing experiment, but he did believe that what happened uh, with the Eldridge uh, t- was true. He believed that that the that the ship actually was uh, uh, teleported from Philly to Norfolk and back. And we did talk about that. Um, uh, he, you know, the only uh, uh, you know uh, information that uh, that he or uh, documentation was the uh, uh, decree from Admiral Forrestal that. Uh, uh, he talked about it and he, and he read. And, uh, okay. And, uh, um, are there any surviving members of not just the Eldridge, but also the Antietam? Yeah, there are. Um, now the, you know, the, the, the story with the, uh, Eldridge, uh, Fred Tracy claimed that they, uh, changed the name of the Eldridge to the wiki Uh, they changed the log books. He claims that they took it out to Arizona and they blew it up with, uh, what is it, uh, C, C4, you know, explosives and then buried it. So that's what that's what he said. Um, the government said no, that they took the uh, uh, and the uh, uh, Eldridge and they sold it to Greece, where it was uh, uh, named, renamed to Leon. And then it was eventually uh, uh, just uh, decommissioned. And let me see, I think I have the... Um, the date for that, um, the, it was differing. Um, okay, so um, here, here's uh, in my one narrative. There are differing accounts of how the story ended. The USS Eldridge had been used to escort men and materials to North Africa and Southern Europe. In 1951, the Eldridge was transferred to the Royal Hellenic Navy and then to Greece, renamed the HS Leon, and 42 years later, it was sold for scrap uh, seemingly unfitting to such a legendary uh, vessel. But Tracy's recollection was more bizarre. He said that there was a uh, closed session with the, uh, the Congress in 49, and they decided to uh, get rid of the ship, to destroy it. And uh, so they took it out to Arizona, and they used C4 uh, to, uh, to, dis- to destroy the ship and then bury it. So this is, again, and that's not unusual that you would have two differing to conflicting uh stories you know especially when it when it concerns the government and you know government possible i don't want to say possible you know alleged government uh cover-up so yeah certainly well how did how did fred tracy know about this i mean was he was he part of those meetings or, or what was his position yeah that's an interesting thing he um uh claimed that he that he knew about the um uh, it seemed to me that maybe it was almost uh, widespread knowledge with, with, with some of the sailors. Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but he claimed that there was a, uh, uh, a, a closed-door session on the Philadelphia incident in 1949, and then Congress ordered that the, uh, they get rid of all, you know, that they cover up all the information, get rid of the, sh- the ship. So that was his information. And, uh, you know, I wish... I, I could go back there and say, Fred, how did you know this? You know, but, um, you know, there was so much information. I mean, I was just like inundated with information, with letters, with documentation, with all this stuff that I still have uh, in one of my files, you know, like all of the stuff from Fred Tracy, to just like, which was, uh, it's, there's probably a book there. So. Uh, all right. So you mentioned that uh, there are other surviving members did did Fred Tracy give you any names or or point you in the direction to get in touch with those people? 
Well, the people on, you know, again, with the uh, with the Eldridge, you know, uh, the government is saying that uh, this wasn't true, that the Eldridge wasn't in Philadelphia at that time. And, you know, this, you know, I mean, they have a totally different timeline. So they disavow all of that um, uh, with the Antietam. Um, the there were people, I believe, that uh, were contacted. And uh, I don't think that they were able to cl- corroborate. Fred Tracy's story. So um, uh, I don't know. I'm I'm looking for my. I have information on you know on on the follow to that. So I don't have that here. But um, um, so so I I can't answer that. I don't know. Okay, but you um you did reach out to them or or you didn't. I believe I contacted. I believe there were a number of people from the Antietam. Uh, and, uh, I don't believe I, they were able to, to, uh, validate what Fred said. Okay. When you mean that they didn't validate what he said, meaning they just didn't know who Fred Tracy was, or they didn't like, like, what do you mean by it? They well, they might not have been, I don't know. I don't know if they, they were just not, uh, privy to that or it didn't impact on them or, or not. I mean, I, you know, I think that would have been a significant thing. Uh, Fred said that the, 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 crew members were called together and to, and the, uh, the, uh, the document from Admiral Forrestal was read to them. So, you know, they should have known about that, but, um, I don't know. I don't know, um, um, you know, uh, what, uh, uh, the other crew members thought of this. Um, you know, I, I, again, I don't know. I don't know what the, uh, okay. you know, what they would say about it. All right. That, that's fine. So, and to anyone listening right now, if you have any information or any relatives who were connected to the USS Eldridge or the USS Antietam, please, please get in touch with Maxim Furick. Um, you can reach him on his website. It's maximfurick.com, and I'll put links to this in the show notes. But uh, any any pieces of information is just helpful and kind of piecing together these mysteries, because as time passes, a lot of these people who were involved are going to pass away. And we need to kind of get that story out. Just like, you know, I bring up the Roswell incident, right? Everyone knows what the Roswell incident was. Well, a lot of those firsthand witnesses have passed away. And now we have secondhand, thirdhand stories. And you know, as a researcher, um, the more you have those types of accounts where it's not direct accounts, the more the, uh, the details get lost. Exactly. Exactly. When your brother originally, um, mentioned Fred Tracy, you said that they, they were in the military together, right? Jim was in the military. Yeah. My, yeah. My, uh, my cousin, Jim, Oh, your cousin, who was a medic and Jim, uh, at the time was, uh, was living in, in Derry, uh, New Hampshire and knew Fred, you know, through military, uh, I guess, organizations or whatever. And, uh, he told me about Fred and the story was just amazing. So, like I said, uh, uh, when when Jim was there, Jim called him up and said, uh, "Fred, I have somebody want to want to introduce you to." So I remember talking to him. I was at Jim's place uh, in here in Pennsylvania, and then we talked, and then uh, I got his number, and then we chatted some more uh, several times, and then I decided to go up there. So I remember I spent a weekend there, and I took pictures, and uh, I have a picture of Fred in uh, uh, in uh, co-region Hoodoo, and I have uh, all of my other documents and photos 
in another location. They're not here in Pennsylvania, but um, I need to get to those. And yes, I will go and uh, archive those and um, uh, uh, do my best to get you uh, a copy as well. You mentioned the Montauk experiment. Yeah. This often intersects with the discussions about the Philadelphia experiment. How are these two narratives connected? And do you add, do you think there's any credibility to the Montauk experiments? Well, the, um, like I said, the Philadelphia experiment is something that makes sense to me, the Philadelphia experiment. And then we started to hear about the Montauk and uh, we start to hear about uh, Dulce, uh, the Dulce Wars in, in New Mexico. So these happened after the Philadelphia Experiment. Uh, Al Bilak was pretty much the one that was talking about uh, uh, the Montauk Project. He claimed that after he went into the future, came back to the Eldridge, and then the, uh, he was put in charge of this Montauk experiment. He was the director or something. But, you know, that Montauk project, it took allegedly, you know, we started to hear about this in the 80s, but uh, it alleges that there was a series of government projects uh, at the uh, Montauk Air Force Station in in New York. It was called Camp Hero. And it was a place where they would develop psychological warfare techniques and do uh, exotic research, including time travel. So that's where Al Bilek comes in. I mean, Bilek claimed that he was transported, you know, from the Eldridge, you know, to the future and then from the Eldridge to Montauk. So he claimed that that happened. And uh, uh, that was one thing. The other thing then was his friend Phil Schneider and Phil Schneider uh, was invited to do a series of uh, 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 conferences with uh, Al uh, Bilak. And uh, and, uh, uh, Phil Schneider was the one that talked about, he claimed that he was uh, 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 an explosive engineer that worked for the government. Uh, Schneider said that he had a high level security clearance. And he said that that he helped build the secret underground base in Dulce. Now that's a, um, this is around 1995. So Montauk in the 80s, uh, Dulce in the 90s. And again, we're seeing other theories after uh, the Philadelphia experiment. And uh, so um, Schneider uh, was, uh, after he started to do, the, uh, do his, his conferences, his lectures, and he was saying that there's a new world order. He said uh, the new world order is connected with extraterrestrials. Uh, he said that he wanted the government to be more transparent about what they know about alien life, just as what we're hearing here in, in 2023. But he also believed that people in the government were trying to shut him down. Six months after that, and he told he told his friends and family that if he committed suicide, it would it would be murder, not suicide. Six months later, he was found dead. He was in his apartment and he was killed military style. Piano wire was wrapped around his neck and he was killed that way. So this was Phil Schneider. Again, too bizarre. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know how close he came to the truth, but um, I'm just wondering if some of these things like the Montauk Project aren't just let out 
just as a, uh, a type of government disinformation to make people head in that direction and say, well, wait a second. You know, I mean, I mean, I could buy uh, psychological warfare and, uh, you know, uh, you know, experiments like that, but I don't know about time travel. So, you know, there, you know, there's always, you know, something of the bizarre with these, these things, but uh, the Montauk thing was pretty much the one that was promoted by Albilac and the uh, Dulce wars, they called them the, uh, the alien human battle and do say that according to Phil Schneider, uh, there was a, a battle going on in, uh, I guess it was 1979. And there were something like uh, 60 uh, uh, of our Delta forces that were killed. And there were extra, they call them extraterrestrial biological entities. Some of those were killed and uh, just a really bizarre story. Um, uh, he claims uh, uh uh, Phil Schneider claimed that there's uh, underground military installations. They were called DUMBS, uh, D-U-M-B-S. And he said that there's, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of them in the United States. They cost billions of dollars, but they're with the black budget. This is funding that, you know, it's hard to find out who gets this money because it's layers and layers of other departments and everything. So he claimed that he was part of uh, building these uh, underground military installations and uh, deep underground military installations or D-U-M-B-S. So um, that was his narrative. That was his story. But, you know, he was killed. His good friend, Ron Rummel, who was the, who was published Alien Digest, he committed suicide and, uh, and uh, Schneider believed that he was murdered. And then another one was Dr. Carla Turner, who died of this uh, just an un uh, unidentifiable cancer. She was in perfect health, had no genetic history of cancer, but she was another one that was involved in uh, uh, what she called the, she was focusing on alien military and paramilitary abductions or more, the malevolent alien abduction research. And she was killed. So there was just a number of people that either committed suicide or were murdered who were part of these things, um, especially the, the Dulce thing in New, in New Mexico. So uh, I don't know what to make of it, but, you know, um, uh, this whole thing about Dulce and about Phil Schneider, it reads like a crime thriller. And you have villains and blood splatters and dead bodies. I mean, it's just an actual thing. Uh, so again, Phil Schneider and Al Belak were connected. You know, uh, Belak was doing these these uh, these these programs in, in the '90s, around '95, I believe, and and uh, Phil Schneider went along with him. So they are uh, notorious in uh, you know ufology. Uh, their stories are bizarre. Uh, they're they're unsubstantiated, but yet they're uh, you know they're they're maybe you know we do know that there's. Uh, uh, with the Cold War, uh, we built uh, underground uh, military installations. So the fact that uh, Phil Schneider said that he worked on some of them, you know, is probably true. And, uh, you know, were there aliens down there? Well, he, he claimed that there was something called, this got even more bizarre, but uh, Phil Schneider claimed there was a thing called the uh, Griotta Treaty. And this is a treaty between the, uh, uh, the Earth, between us Earthlings and the extraterrestrial. That it was a trade-off. And so we were living peacefully. They were uh, sharing their technology with us. And we were giving them safety, and then at some point, they, they, uh, something happened, and uh, a war went on, and uh, like 
Schneider said 60 men were killed. Right. Yeah. Phil Schneider's um, talks are out there on YouTube. You can listen to it for yourself. You can watch his presentation. Um, And he he lost some fingers apparently in in these firefights with these otherworldly entities. Exactly. Yeah. Some kind of a laser beam, he said. Uh, the alien shot at him with a laser beam, some kind of laser plasma beam, he called it. Right. Now, let me ask you, Maxim. Like, do you, I mean, do you think there is any credibility to Phil Schneider's claims? I think, I have to think that I think Al Belak and maybe even Phil Schneider might have been part of, and again, this is, this is my, my own uh, opinion. And I'm just I'm still thinking it through, but I think they might have been part of a government uh, disinformation campaign. And I think the Philadelphia, Philadelphia experiment came closer to the truth than Montauk or uh, Dulce. But uh, I think that they were part of a disinformation campaign that, uh, you know, that uh, uh, was about extraterrestrials and uh, uh, aliens and time travel and all the rest. So I just think that. Whenever we get close to the truth, we get these stories, these narratives that are really bizarre and off the charts. And I think that's the part I believe that Phil Schneider and and, and I really believe that uh, Al Bielak was part of that, too. I mean, Al Bielak's story is like Al Bielak's why it's like uh, Mr. Toad's wild ride. I mean. Al Bielak, I mean, you know, being uh, time traveled, you know, uh, you know, 100 years into the future and then back to the Eldridge and then back to Montauk and Montauk and, and all that. I mean, that's just I mean, it's not even uh, for me. <laughs> it's it's hard to get my my arms around it uh, with Schneider. Schneider's is, I think, more believable. You know, uh, I mean, uh, I think there are you know, there are there are we know there are underground uh uh, caverns there. There was a, a French um, uh, uh, article. It was uh, in 1999, the French government published a study. They concluded that the United States government has withheld Im- evidence pointing to UFOs existence. It was called UFOs and defense. What must we be prepared for? And they talked about these underground facilities and you know what we know i mean we're the top dog there as far as the you know the free world i mean we have more uh military might and we have more resources so i think there's i think there's something to phil schneider's story that uh you know that uh that resonates that you know that uh, with with authenticity uh al Bielak, again i think is think is uh you know uh suspect uh, uh, I, I would have loved to have been at the, the conference with the two of them, though. <laughs> that had to be uh, just a great, great uh, time. Yeah. And, and to anyone listening, if you were at that conference, can you please get in touch with me? Um, I would love to hear your take on it. If you heard from Phil Schneider firsthand, if you're present in the audience, because we yeah. see these grainy videos on YouTube of Phil Schneider giving his talk. Right. But we don't hear about people who were present for that talk. Yeah. And um, I, I'm sure that there's more to this story. Um, all right. So let's back up a little bit because uh, you brought up uh, disinformation. We know that there are active disinformation agents working to muddy the waters and disseminate false information to researchers into the Philadelphia experiment and the UFO topic and many others. Um, just to give the listeners a few examples, 
we know about Richard Doty, who worked for the AFOSI feeding disinformation to Paul Benowitz and Linda Moulton Howe. Paul Benowitz, right? Yep. And uh, so Paul Benowitz was a researcher who was, um, he came across some interesting signals coming out of Kirtland Air Force Base and was filming strange lights and uh, these unusual radio signals. So he he contacted uh, Kirtland and he was trying to share his findings. And um, in an attempt to kind of quiet him, they fed him this BS story that he was picking up on UFOs. And they told him that, hey, we're going to help you. Well, then we have William Moore. Yep. Okay. And he admitted at a MUFON conference, and I think it was 1989, that he was feeding junk to UFO researchers. And he was part of and was engaged with these disinformation activities against Paul Benowitz. Mm-hmm. So the reason I'm bringing uh, William Moore's name up is because William Moore wrote the Philadelphia experiment with Charles Berlitz that you, yeah. you brought up earlier. So yeah. Yeah. he also wrote the Roswell incident with, again, with Berlitz. It makes me wonder if some of these uh, legendary stories that circulate in the community, if they didn't originate in a fictitious realm because of, you know, these disinformation agents and their associations to these these stories so i I mean what do you what do you make of it i mean do you think we're being fed something that is not entirely accurate well i think there's at least two two theories here two possibilities one um that uh uh, philadelphia experiment and roswell was disinformation that was fed to william moore and berlitz and uh you know and uh you know, to the UFO community. So, so that's one possibility. The other one, though, is I think that maybe they got a little bit too close to the truth and the government decided to use them as operatives. So what they did was they fed, fed them additional disinformation. So by admitting that they were doing this disinformation, it's sort of, you know, the rest of us will take a, another look at the Philadelphia Experiment and Roswell and MJ-12 and all the other th- things and just question that. So I think this disinformation campaign has worked because we're just, you know, scratching our heads and just wondering what's true and what's not. And, uh, but um, I think that um, more somehow got caught and, um, you know, the, the other, th- my other theory was this, that, that he somehow got caught and he used this disinformation thing as a way to get out of it. Uh, I think he might've made up some stuff, you know, I thought that maybe he was a legitimate researcher, but might've fudged some data, made up some stuff. And then when he was caught, I believe he might have used as an excuse that he was being used as a government operative. And he was feeding, uh, you know, the world this disinformation. So that is the third, the third possibility that after he was caught, he's, you know, he was uh, using that uh, that information. So again, we don't know, but there's, um, you know, there's plenty of room for conjecture and for theories, and uh, and and we and we don't know. But but again, like, but looking at. Philadelphia experiment and looking at Roswell, you know, something happened there, you know, something happened there. Certainly in 1947, when uh, that thing came down, it wasn't a weather balloon. And, uh, 
you know, we were out in Roswell. I talked to Walter Howard. He was the the press, the guy who released the uh, uh, the press uh, uh, report, you know, for the Roswell Air Force Base. And then they changed it. I think the same day, you know, because because it, it went out, and then the the the, the uh, Air Force is saying that this isn't going to fly. So they changed it up and said that it was just a weather balloon and they had i think jesse marcel come and pose you know with that that stupid looking expression you know well it wasn't it wasn't a weather balloon and then look at the whole series of roswell i mean then it was uh, project mogul and then it was project skyhook i mean there's just lie after lie after lie cover up after cover up after cover up i mean i don't know i don't i I, I don't believe what they're telling us. And you can't tell me that technology that they used in 1947, uh, allegedly to detect if the Soviets were conducting uh, nuclear uh, explosions, you know, underground. I mean, so what? That is, you know, technology from 1947. We have advanced, you know, a million times over. We have better, faster, you know, uh, te- more sophisticated technology than we had back then. There's nothing, I, I don't think, that needs to be covered up or, or, or classified uh, in any way, you know, with uh, Project Mogul or Skyhook or any of those other things. So I, I, I you know, again, um, you know, the, 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 the main theme tonight, I mean, it seems to be government disinformation and government cover-up. I mean, the government is a key player in all this, and we just don't know to what extent. How has the broader UFO and paranormal communities responded to your research and your writings on the Philadelphia experiment? Have you encountered any surprising or unexpected reactions? What I no, I'm getting a couple of things. One, I'm getting invited to Bigfoot expos, and you know, I mean, I have a couple of chapters on Bigfoot in uh, Co-Region Hoodoo. But uh, you know, my uh, real passion, I think, is in uh, aspects of the paranormal and also ufology. And again, I'm like everybody else. I just want to find out what it is, you know. And I, you know, and, and uh, with the flying saucer esoteric that should be coming out the end of September or early October, you know, I have, uh, you know, uh, have some interesting things there that, that, you know, that we could talk about, but, um, uh, but uh, no, it's, the book's been well received. Um, you know, um, you know, somebody called me the, uh, the John Keel, you know, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I don't know if that's, that was a compliment, but, um, um, but, you know, Keel talked about a lot of, Uh, bizarre things when you look for explanations, you know, like, are there entities that are just fooling with us, messing with us, you know, playing tricksters, you know, like, like, uh, like the, uh, what's the, uh, uh, the Indian, the Native American trickster out there, uh, Cocopelli, you know, that just uh, plays tricks on, on, on people. And, um, but I don't know. I mean, we, you know, uh, you know, we, these entities uh, that, that we may be sharing space with, they, they don't seem to be, evil and malevolent, you know, we just don't know what they are. And, um, but, you know, uh, July 26, 2023, that's when we had that congressional, those congressional hearings. And uh, Grush said that he knows where the bodies are and he knows where the crash sites are. And we're just waiting to find out where they are. He claimed that he shared that information with the government. So, you know, we're looking for that. We'd like to find out as well. So, 
Um, a lot of things happening now, you know, like if you're a whistleblower, you know, you have protection. Uh, they're asking people to come forward if they see things. Now, don't be afraid of retribution. Don't be afraid of being embarrassed or castigated. You know, if you've seen something, we well, want to know about it. So it seems that the government is being more forthcoming now than they have been. Uh, so, you know, we'll wait and see. But I mean, we're waiting for, for the next act. You know, uh, you know, the, the congressional hearings on uh, July 26 were telling. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I was at WVIA Studios being interviewed by Erica Funky uh, that same day. So I was just like, you know, uh, couldn't wait to get back home and, 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 and uh, uh, watch some of that, you know, that we taped. So uh, but anyway, that's uh, that's, you know, just crazy, important uh, news. And uh, we're waiting to find out what, you know, what, what, what what's what's the next uh uh, thing that's going to come from that. So, You've been invited to the upcoming Bigfoot and Cryptic Supernatural Expo. Could you give us a little preview of what attendees can expect from your uh, your presentation at this event? Yeah, it's, it's going to be in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and that's in Cambria County. That's real close to what's called the uh, Chestnut Ridge. That's a four or five county area uh, south uh, east of Pittsburgh, Allegheny County, where we've seen the most Bigfoot sightings and also Bigfoot in conjunction with UFOs. So I'm going to be talking about that connection. Uh, what uh, you know, uh, and I believe that Bigfoot and uh, UFOs or UAPs share some uh, a lot of commonality. So I'm going to be talking about that. But one thing of interest is that I'm getting so much um, uh, exposure in Western Pennsylvania. We have I've, we've had feature articles written in. Uh, Butler County, where Night of the Living Dead was was filmed, in Fayette County, Cambria County, uh, the uh, Pittsburgh Post Gazette uh, is, uh, you know, I believe is going to do something. So it's just been uh, great, you know, to get this uh, exposure in Western Pennsylvania, you know, the sort of the epicenter of, uh, you know, Bigfoot and uh, country. And last year we had a chance to go out to the Kecksburg UFO Festival and hang out with Stan Gordon and then go up to Evans City and uh, meet the mayor of Evans City where they shot Night of the Living Dead. So he was he offered to uh, remarry me and my wife, Pat, in the uh, chapel. So, oh, that's so anyway, uh, but it was it was pretty cool. So, um, you know, Pennsylvania is just an epicenter of of weirdness. And co-region hoodoo tells that story. I mean, I take a look at, you know, it's Pennsylvania centric. Uh, you know, the uh, Night of the Living Dead, the blob and the Philadelphia experiment are motion pictures that are, you know, our own, uh, you know, creations. They come from our Commonwealth. And, uh, you know, so the, the, the book co-region hoodoo is just doing so well and has been so, uh, and, and thanks for the question. It's been very, very well received. And, um, I probably could have made two books out of it, you know, because it cast a wide net. But I'm glad I did what I did. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, uh, you know, I mean, I really uh, I'm proud of the book. It has over 400 references to books, magazine articles and personal interviews. And, uh, you know, and I think it reads well. So I'm I'm pleased with uh, Hoodoo and then Flying Saucer Esoterics coming out. So, yeah, when that. Yeah, that's pretty amazing because when that gets published, that'll be two books that I've had will have had published in 2023. So I'm, you know, sort of excited. Yeah, let, pretty- let's let's get into this. You know, tell us about this latest book. It's called "The Flying Saucer Esoteric: History's Most Amazing UFO Events." Right. 
And what I do is I take a look at, uh, you know, the whole thing about flying saucers, and I start with B.C., you know, before Christ. I start with individuals, theologians and astronomers who believed that there was life on other planets. And some of these were viewed as heretics, and they would were put to death because they went against church and state. You know, back in the day, uh, you know, the church believed that everything revolved around the sun. That was like ordained. And when Copernicus and all these other people start to say, no, wait a second, you know, like, I mean, you know, every, you know, uh, we're going around, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a lot of the things that they were saying was uh, going against, you know, with the church believe so uh, they were viewed as heretics but I take a look at the uh, uh, the folks bef before Christ and then I look at biblical scripture that a lot of uh, people like Eric von Doniken uh, uh, and uh, uh, Morris Jessup you know so many people uh, uh, believed uh, was proof that um, that aliens came down here and interbred with humans and then helped create things like the pyramids and Easter Island and all the other things. So, um, so I talk about some of those specific uh, scriptures, and then I get into the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries, and I talk about Copernicus and Galileo. I talk about Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and just all of this stuff, you know, the... Uh, you know, the Shaver mystery, the, uh, you know, Fort's Book of the Dam, the wormhole theory. So it's, uh, you know, Adamski's Wild Ride. So I talk about uh, contactees, abductees, hoaxers and scientists and planetary explorers. So it's a book that takes a look at all of this. You know, it's almost like not a listing or a compilation, but it's almost like a like a time travel, like a time machine. And uh I'm hoping, I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to, it's coming out at the right time. And, uh, and what it is, I mean, you could open it up to 1947 and look at Roswell and take a look at what happened before, immediately before Roswell. Was there any activity? Was there anything going on as far as UFOs? And then look at it after. So it's just a, a great way to go and take a look at this, uh, this, what I call like a, like a time machine. So, uh, yeah, the flying saucer esoteric, and uh, I'm hoping to be uh, working on the uh, the uh, cover, you know, real soon, you know, because uh, they want this book out by the uh, end of September or early October. So, uh, oh wow, you know, okay. Yeah. So it's it's come along fast, but um, well, let me ask you this: Will your personal encounter be in there? Well, my personal encounter, yeah, I talk about that. I was uh, in the Navy. I was a, a radarman aboard the USS Constellation. And I have seen numerous flying saucers, I mean, UFOs that are, were faster and more maneuverable than anything we had or the other side had. You know, so they, you know, we don't know what they are, but they could have been extraterrestrial or they could have been these uh, anomalies, uh, temperature uh, uh, inversions, whatever. They could be these anomalies that we don't know anything about. We don't know. But, you know, uh, we saw them and we put them in the logbooks. And just like with Fred Tracy and some of his buddies aboard the Antietam, I don't know what they were told, but, you know, they were told, uh, Fred Tracy says that they were told that they were, you know, they, they, they would be uh, re severely reprimanded if they um, uh, acknowledged any of this information that they received from Admiral Forrestal. With us, you know, a lot of us were just kids. We were like under 20 years of age 
uh, serving aboard this constellation. And we were told to keep our mouth shut. Uh, we didn't see anything. You know, those log books where we would uh, write down the range and bearing of all these UFOs, those log books would disappear the next day and they would be replaced with brand new books. But, you know, I would go through some of these log books and see all this the UFO sightings. So they were, you know, we saw them all the time. And uh, the same thing's happening now. I mean, nothing has changed. Uh, I'll tell you what, I was watching... <clears throat> Earth versus the Flying Saucers, I think it was 1956. I was watching that on YouTube a couple of nights ago. And a lot of these early 50s science, black and white science fiction movies would have this professor, this uh, expert who would talk about flying saucers. Well, this guy that's talking said that 3% of the things that we see, we can identify. And that was the same thing that the Pentagon was saying back in 2020. You know, that uh, there's things out there. They're either ours, theirs or they're extraterrestrial, you know, 3% of them, we don't know. We have no idea what they are. So things haven't changed. And, uh, I, you know, when I was watching Earth versus the, versus the Flying Saucer, I thought, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty neat. You know, that, you know, fits into the narrative. So Interesting. Um, and, and if you can't talk about this, just let me know. But when you were on board the USS Constellation, whereabouts did you see these anomalous objects yeah pretty well we here's what we did we were <clears throat> our uh tour duty it was it was called westpac western pacific so you know i was 17 18 years old uh hawaii hong kong philippines japan and gulf of tonkin so that's where we, we we went that's where we watched the scope so any place between hawaii hong kong philippines japan and the war zone the gulf of tonkin you know we saw those we saw them all the time we saw them, uh, you know, probably every day. We saw UFOs again, faster and more maneuverable than any guided missile that we had or that the other side had. Just faster, they would make these turns with just ter terrific G-force that humans couldn't withstand. So, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't. I mean, uh, no, nobody knows. But um, even with uh, in San Diego, that Tic Tac thing that everybody, you know, that they're talking about, the uh, uh, the Navy pilots followed it, uh, went uh, under it, it went on top of them, it followed them for a while, it tracked, and then it took off. So, um, you know, uh, not a meteorite or uh, an asteroid or anything else. It was something that seemed to have had uh, been. Uh, uh, directed, you know, by some kind of uh, in intelligence. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't some kind of a mirage or some kind of, a, you know, I mean, it just, uh, there was, it was, uh, you know, it was maneuverable. Right. And, so, um, and what was, what was the, what was the time frame that you were, you were stationed aboard this? Uh, that was around uh, 67 and 68. Okay. Did you ever do any research to like, you know, find out if there were any other I mean, I, what you said earlier was that you you guys were told to shut up. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, the logbooks were removed. Um, yep. Did you do any research and find out if there were any other people who have come forward and talked about similar experiences? Well, I've talked to my to my shipmates, and I still keep in touch with a bunch of them. And yeah, they say the same thing. You know, it was the same thing. You know, don't talk about it. But back then, you know, before this wave of nonconformity and protest and rebellion hit, you know, and that hit pretty good uh, in the United States with a lot of us. Uh, before that, though, we were pretty law abiding and we would go and follow those directives. So when they said, keep your mouth shut and don't tell anybody about it, 
you know, we pretty much did that. But in retrospect, you know, I mean, looking back, I mean, I've talked to a bunch of my Navy buddies that I'm still in contact with. And, and, and you know, they say the same thing. I mean, what, what I'm saying that, you know, don't talk about it. And uh, and we saw that. So Maxim Furyk, he's got a new book coming out. He has one already out. It's called Coal Region Hoodoo, Paranormal Tales from Inside the Pit. And you can get that from his website. MaximFurek.com. That's M-A-X-I-M-F-U-R-E-K.com. MaximFurek.com. It's always a, always a pleasure talking with you, friend. So uh, thanks again. Yeah, and thank you. And again, thank you for uh, keeping the memory of the Philadelphia experiment alive. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, a great story and uh, more people need to know about it. And, uh, you know, those motion pictures that were created, you know, they, uh, they totally went, totally went off script. So, uh, you know, didn't follow the story at all, but, uh, you know, they're, they're interesting and they're fun to watch, but, um, yeah, thank you so much. And again, uh, if any of you, your listeners are interested, the, the newest book is coal region hoodoo paranormal tales from inside the pit. So, uh, yeah, thanks so much. I really enjoyed, uh, having our chat. Of course. We'll have to have you back for another episode. All right. Absolutely. Take care, my friend. Okay, take care. Thank you. You have been listening to Terror Signals with Justin Bamforth and presented by Normal Paranormal. For more on this show and other topics of high strangeness, please visit normalparanormal.org or visit the program website at terrorsignals.com. 